Fiona, and welcome to Insight Intercom. Over the last few months, we've been sharing talks from our 2017 Insight Intercom World Tour. This world tour was a way for us to share the lessons we've been learning as we've grown from a 15-person company to an organization that's well over the 500 mark. And hopefully you've taken away insights on growing your own business in terms of things to try as well as things to definitely avoid. We're closing out the series today with a talk from our VP of product, Paul Adams. Paul came to Intercom in 2013 after years leading product and design at Facebook at Google. In his talk today, he shares about the one pattern he's seen in many of the issues he's dealt with as a product leader. Here's how he would describe it. You see a problem and then you kind of correct and momentum changes and things change and then it swings back the other way and sometimes you counter correct and over correct that way and then you need to move things back into the middle and try and find some kind of balance. Sound familiar? Paul shares five areas where he's seen this pattern come up. Areas dealing with product roadmaps, launch timelines, hiring, and people management. He talks about the learnings he's had that have helped him curtail the swing of that dreaded pendulum. So if you're dealing with similar kinds of issues today in your own team or organization, this episode is for you. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast however you're listening to us. And here's Paul. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Hey, everybody. As I said earlier, I'm going to talk about the many mistakes we've made building our product, building our product team, things that relate to people as much as they do to product. So I joined Intercom uh, just over four years ago. We were tiny. We were about 15 people. We've grown to nearly 400. Over that period, we've made many, many mistakes, some big, some small. But when we look back at all these things, there's something interesting, and that's that a lot of these mistakes and things we wish we hadn't done or done differently actually have the simple pattern, the same simple pattern. And that's actually what I want to talk about, because I think that it's very common, and you'll see this tomorrow and the next day when you go to work. I think you'll start to observe similar things. The pattern is really simple. The pattern is basically that you find yourself in an undesirable state. You realize that there's a problem, something's broken, and you want to fix it. But in fixing it, you often overcorrect. And so I, I've experienced this myself. I've done it many times. Lots of people around me have done it many times. And the, the metaphor that I've, I use to describe this, which is a little bit strange, is that it's like a pendulum swing. It's like a big pendulum swinging back and forth. So you see a problem, and then you kind of correct, and momentum changes, and things change, and then it swings back the other way. And sometimes you counter correct and over correct that way, and then you need to move things back into the middle and try and find some kind of balance. And so tonight, I'm going to share five stories. These are stories that I think will resonate with people. I think when you see these stories, you'll see yourselves in them, you'll see your company in them you might think, wow, that's us. We, we do that. Or, shit, I do that. And hopefully that will help you think about it or think about doing things differently. These pendulum swings are emotional for people. They're emotional for the people who are involved in them. They're emotional for the people who swing the pendulum. And they're emotional for all the people that are connected to that person. So the first of the five stories is 
trying to balance doing big projects and inventing with doing smaller projects and iterating. So at the end of every calendar year, we look back and look at all the product that we shipped in that year. It's a sense of pride for us in the product team. Certainly, we care a lot about how often we ship and the cadence of shipping and getting things in front of customers. And we look back at the year and kind of evaluate the year based on how many things we shipped. And at the end of 2015, we shipped over 100 things. So through one calendar year with about 20 or 30 people, the product and engineering team of about 30, we had shipped over 100 things. It was kind of a source of great pride, a nice moment. But we realized they were small things. Most of these things that we shipped were small. And we concluded, we're very hard on ourselves, we concluded that we just weren't inventing. We shipped 100 things, but they weren't new things necessarily. And you know, we kind of consider ourselves to be a, co a company that brings new things into the world. And so we decided that 2016 was going to be the year of invention. And so we started to swing, we started to correct. We saw this problem of a lack of invention and started to swing and move momentum in one direction. And so in 2016, we did three big projects. And at the end of 2016, we looked back and realized that we had shipped in that year with double the staff, 50 things. So we'd gone from 2015, 100 things, to 2016, 50 things. We'd halved our efficiency. There were big projects in there too, but it didn't necessarily feel good. And so at the start of 2017, we said we were going to swing the other way and actually have small projects again. And when I was trying to figure out what was happening and evaluate what's going on and uh, writing this talk, actually, I started to realize that this imbalance and this swinging has been happening for years. 2013, we shipped many, many, many small things. 2014, we shipped some bigger things. We invented things. 2015, small things. 2016, big things. 2017, back to small things. And the problem with this, the problem with this swing, you might say like, well, big projects and small projects doesn't really matter. The problem with that is that the process you need for big projects is different than the process you need for small projects. And great product companies that I've observed certainly obsess about process and they obsess about being operationally efficient and excellent. And so when you have projects that swing between big and small and the process changes from project to project, people have to think. They have to change how they work. And it's emotionally exhausting for people. And people start to ask questions like, we, is this the way we do this? Or is that for the bigger project or the smaller project? And it's actually really, really intense. And the switching cost, the switching cost between doing these big projects and doing these small projects is actually really expensive. And people often don't think about that. And we didn't think about that. We would literally just say, hey, we need to course correct, we need to invent, or we need to iterate more. And we would like set the, 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 the goals, I guess, in motion, the goals that are for our teams to fulfill in motion, and never ever considered the emotional intensity and the switching costs associated with it. That's the first kind of big swing. Do we do big or small projects? The second of the five is whether we should have a buggy product or not have a buggy product kind of sounds obvious, you should clearly not have a buggy product. But actually, that's not our experience. That's not what we found. So it was summer 2014, Intercom was buggy. Our app was buggy. And it wasn't just like a little bit buggy. It was embarrassingly bad. And uh, as people who have some pride in our craft and the things we make, we wanted to fix it. And 
because it was so bad, we, we, the leadership team of the product and engineering orgs, started to swing this pendulum. And we said, we're going to make Intercom as close to bug-free as possible. And the people that we hire don't come into work to fix bugs. They come into work to build things and make things and make new things. And so we knew this was going to be kind of crap, and we knew that people weren't going to be excited about it. So we gave the project a name, the project for Intercom to be bug-free, a name. I'm even embarrassed telling you what this name is. The name of the project was Project Awesome. <laughs> this is like the worst part of this whole day. Uh, project Awesome. And, and you know, it wasn't awesome. It, it sucked. It was terrible. If you talk to people who worked in Intercom at the time, I don't know if anyone actually left because of it, but I think it came close. Uh, you know, it, was a, it was a dark time, it was miserable. And it went on for like two or three months, and it was just miserable. People were coming into work, and we look at these charts, and the charts were like, you know, our bug counts just rising, rising, rising. And people were like all day working on bugs, working on bugs as part of Project Awesome. And, uh, and the, the, the bugs are going down, but new bugs are coming in. And so that, the chart was still kind of like rising or flat, and it was wavering. And, you know, two or three months in, we were like, wow, this is just like not attainable. This is terrible name, but a terrible idea. I mean, we're, this just this isn't going to happen. And so we, we swung the pendulum the other way and said, and tried to counter-correct and said, well, well, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that, first of all, we can't do this and we're not good at naming things. But we, <laughs> we, we all, I'm getting a lot of mileage out of this. Uh, we also learned that um, it's nuanced. The picture is nuanced. And what we did was we historically, like every company, I think of some version of prioritizing bugs that come in, like a P1 or a P2 or a P3, and you fix your P1s before your P2s. We realized, and that was the thing we were tracking, we realized that that actually wasn't the full picture at all. And what we did was we created a new way of prioritizing our bugs, and we called it CS1 and CS2. And CS stands for customer support. And so our customer support team, some of whom are here tonight, are an incredibly strategic asset to our company. We consider our customer support team as invaluable insight to what our customers need. They're like the direct line to our customers, the people at the front lines of understanding what our customers do, and our product team talk to our customer support team a lot. And so when they talk to our customers through Intercom, they tag conversations, and they'll typically tag it with feature request or bug or you know, the team or, that owns that part of the product. And so we have this kind of tagging system. And the CS1s were basically issues that were happening all the time, almost every day. And the CS2s were things that were happening less frequently, but still pretty frequently. And so what we started to see was that you might have a P3 bug that you know, an engineer or a PM might describe as not that important, but it was happening every day, every day. We used to have GitHub issues with like just comments of like, yep, today, again, yeah, again, 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 again. And that was what was making Intercom feel buggy. It wasn't actually the P2s or the fact that there was 100 issues open in GitHub. It was actually the severity of these things for our customers. And so what we did was we said, OK, instead of just you know, codifying these things by how big a product or engineering problem we think they might be, let's code them first by how important our customers think they are. And by doing that, by telling teams, like, just get those CS1 and CS2 counts down, just get those down and manage those, Things actually got better, a lot better. And our bug count is still high, but it's actually uh, 
like as high in a meaningful way. It's not, you know, the absolute numbers don't matter as much, and it's more the perception of our customers and whether they actually think Intercom is a high-quality product or not. So the big lesson for us in, in this kind of like project awesome, bad time, and then course correcting was that we found this balance where we had the CS1 and CS2 prioritization and realized that the quality of your product is actually relative. It's hard to pinpoint it on one single metric and chasing those metrics, whether it's bug counts or absolute bug counts or absolute P1s, wasn't actually uh, as important as we thought. So the third of these stories, the third pendulum swing, is whether you should hire fast or hire more slowly. If you're a growing company like us, the kind of obvious answer is, oh, you should hire fast. I mean, if, if to fulfill your potential, you need to hire people and grow and so on. But when we did that, we hired very fast through the end of 2015, early 2016. We found that we had a problem. It was spring 2016. And the problem was misalignment. The problem was that new people who had joined the company didn't really understand what we were trying to do. And the reason they didn't understand it is because we hadn't told them. We had put all our effort into hiring. We'd kind of seen this problem, which was our, our, the opportunity, I guess, as well, which was we need to hire fast. We have all these grand plans, but not enough people to enact them. So let's you know, swing this pendulum and like, hire as fast as we possibly can and get all these people into the company. What happened was that we didn't think about onboarding those people. We, I guess we kind of thought people would figure it out for themselves. And in the early days of Intercom, people kind of did figure it out for themselves because it was, too, it was small enough. And we had the situation where new people were onboarding new people. And the new people, the first group of new people, didn't really understand our mission, our values, our culture, what we believe, things we care about. And they were telling other new people. And we actually ended up having three degrees of people telling people things that we'd never told them. And this was a leadership failure. This was a failure of mine and a failure of other leaders in the company. This was our fault. This wasn't the fault of the new people. We'd hired these great new people, smart, ambitious uh, people, and we just had failed them. We had not helped them get, uh, get set up in, in, in a way that they could succeed. And so we then had to kind of take drastic action. We kind of realized one day or one week that this was a problem. We took drastic action, counter-corrected. We ran this workshop. And the workshop was called the Intercom Way Workshop. And the, the workshop was for product and engineering folks, and it was a two-day affair. We put it together real, really fast in like a week, and it was a two-day affair. And it was great. You know, it was, it was the onboarding people should have had the first time they joined, and people received it pretty positively. But we, and we thought we'd solve the problem in this, with this counter-correction. But we realized that it, this thing grew legs. And... Because we'd only delivered it to the product and engineering teams, but onboarding as a theme in our company was actually prevalent across the whole company, the thing grew legs. And so I started hearing back secondhand from people outside product and engineering. And people would say things like, they'd see someone doing something, would say, like, that's not the intercom way. Like, oh, shit, sorry. What's the intercom way? Like, that's not it. And like in, in the gaps, in these like gaps in knowledge, this became shorthand for no one really told us what we're supposed to do. And it was a failing of ours, a big one, and it was six months in the making. And so what we did was we um, killed hiring. We actually made a mistake there too. We actually totally killed hiring. We said, stop hiring people, stop hiring people. 
We need to like onboard all these great people we've already hired. And that was a mistake because if you kill a hiring pipeline and then try and start it up again three months later like we did, you realize that hiring pipelines actually need to be uh, ongoing because you know, at any point in, a, in time, a recruiting team are like keeping people warm. They're like keeping people interested. They're like chatting. They're like you know, light touch and so on. And if you kill it and just start saying to people like, "We're not hiring for a while," you then have to this, start this cold again. Or it actually takes months, in our experience, to get that hiring pipeline up and running again. So we learned to not totally kill it, but we did slow down hiring a lot and refocus on onboarding. So now I think we've a much better balance. Our onboarding is way, way better than it was. And we have a much better balance between understanding the number of people we can bring into the company at any one point in time and making sure that those people have the support and the onboarding and the context in order to be successful. So that was one big lesson. And in a fast-growing company like ours has been, your temptation is just to hire, hire, hire. The fourth of the five is the one that I found personally the hardest. Uh, it's, um, I'm smirking because I find it so hard. <laughs> Basically, you can give people autonomy or you can keep control. And as an early employee and one of our leaders, I have found it hard to give away control. I found it hard. And yet, I know that it's wrong and I know that I should give away control. And it, and give people autonomy. And so I, I've had so many times and so many battles, internal battles in my mind, you don't even want to know what goes on in there, with people and teams and projects trying to find this balance. If you are growing fast and if you are hiring people, you have to give away control. It's part of how companies scale. As you get bigger, the individual people in the company that might have done a lot of things earlier start to do more narrow things. Or you realize that the people who are joined earlier are actually generalists, and you need to start hiring some specialists. And so as you grow and you see these gaps in your understanding, you realize that the solution to many of these problems is actually to hire a specialist. And this has happened to us many times. There was a period where we didn't think we understood the mobile as a technology and landscape and ecosystem, so we hired mobile specialists. It happened with... Um, operational efficiency. We, didn't, we thought we were a very like, intuitive, qualitative type of company, and we don't really understand how to be operationally excellent, and so we hired people who were historically good at that. A third example is opening up a platform, building a third-party platform. We didn't think we really understood how to do that. And so we would hire these specialists. And this was the first big swing. And, you know, me trying to be a good leader, I was like, okay, well, we've brought in these specialists with this experience. I should give them autonomy. You know, I should, like, like correct myself and give them the space that they deserve. They've great CVs and great experience, and why should I get in their way? And so I actually gave people all this autonomy. We hired them in, these specialists, gave them all this autonomy. But I gave them no support, or very little support. And so because they had very little support... They had very little context. And because they had very little context, they leaned on the things that they'd done in previous companies. And everyone who joins a new company has a bias. Right? They bring biases and experiences from their previous company. And in the worst versions of this, it looks like a playbook. It looks like they have a, a way of doing things that was successful in their last company, and they're going to just do that in the, new co in the new company. And often these playbooks or experiences are in opposition to the new company's values or principles or beliefs. And what happens is that 
these experienced specialists who, who were not given the support, again, this is a failing of ours, a failing of the leadership team, a failing of mine, not a failing of theirs. The, they start to do things that are in opposition, and the other employees around them complain. And they complain back to me and to other people and say, this new person doesn't get it, or I'm not sure if this person is the right person for us. And so I started hearing a lot about this. I was like hiring these specialists and, and to try and fix these problems. And so I counter-corrected. And when I heard that things were off track and people were off track, I counter-corrected in the worst way possible, which is to helicopter in. Uh, and I'm sure that people here are either, have either helicoptered in in the past or have been helicoptered on, if that's a word. Uh, but there's been helicoptering. And, and I've done it many times, and it's terrible. You know? and, and I'm thinking, like, I have to fix this before it's too late, and it's already off the rails, and then I go in and start micromanaging people. And imagine how it feels for those people. Imagine how it feels for the people who are brought into the company for the domain expertise. We're told, you have, con you have autonomy. You go figure it out. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm over here. But like, yeah, we believe in you. And then they get like helicoptered on and micromanaged. That's sh shit for them. It's shit. And so the problem is that you know, trying to give people autonomy and then like wrestle it back to put things back on track. The problem is that in a company like ours, and I'm sure a company like many of the ones that you all work in, you have a lot to lose. And each person you bring in actually has a big impact, a big impact on other people. Uh, one person joining a team affects all the other people around them, even if they're quiet. You know, it's not just the, the senior people or the loud people. Everyone has an impact on other people. And if those people are unhappy, or if those people are misaligned, that spreads. That spreads to the other team members. So the balance is to try and figure out how you bring people in who have a specialism, you give them enough autonomy, but you give them enough support. I'm sure this resonates as being hard. I have found this extremely difficult. I think we're getting better at it, but it's been really hard, and we've made lots of mistakes along the way. The only other thing I can leave you, other than just saying to you that it's hard and to try and think about it, is that we've had great success from growing from within. So rather than like just jumping to a solution of like, we need to hire somebody from the outside with this experience and specialism who can like teach us and show us the, the way to do this thing, we've actually had a lot of success saying to people, we don't know about this, and you don't know about this, but we believe in you, and you've, you've been an amazing employee, and are showing great growth potential. Can you figure this out for us? And we've had tremendous success by taking our best people that are already in the company and giving them a problem to figure out in a new domain space and more often than not, they actually figure it out far more successfully than bringing someone from the outside in. So the fifth and final one is whether you should have deadlines or no deadlines. When I joined Intercom, we had no marketing team, we had no sales team. Uh, the only dates we had were self-imposed by the product and engineering teams. Then Matt joined Intercom's first marketer, Intercom's first Australian. Matt joined, and Matt needed deadlines. And he needed them for a good reason, which was to know when to get things ready. So if we're going to build a product and give it to Matt, and Matt and his team are going to take it to market, they needed to like, build landing pages, figure out how to position it, how to talk about it, uh, product education, all sorts of things. And he needed to know, and he needed to have some idea so that he could get plan and, and we could like, sequence things. And so we, we said, OK, Matt, we get it. We, we will have estimates for you and deadlines for you. And we did. And we missed every single one of them. 
Every single one. I'm not exaggerating. Every single one. And this isn't, I know you're laughing because it's not a surprise. And I, like, it's, I don't know any engineering team or product team that could estimate, estimate well. Uh, but we were world-class bad at this. Like Olympic gold bad at estimating how long something would take. And the whole thing was broken, and it was broken for us, and it was broken for Matt and his team. And in 2016 was the worst kind of era for this. These, we had these big projects, these three big projects. They were all late. They were all late by months. We told Matt, like, yeah, we're about a month out, and then a month later, and it's like two months and three months. And then we're like, well, we don't really know. And so it was not a good situation. And so we would kind of swung towards, like, having deadlines, and we needed to swing back and understand what it would look like to have no deadlines. And we said to Matt, we need to get back to a place of having no deadlines. And, you know, the marketing team and sales team would say that that's not very helpful because they need these deadlines. They need something, some kind of estimate. And so we've swung back and forth between this, between trying to estimate work and trying to get good at it and reading books about it and then having none and then that breaks in other ways. And we just, it's taken us years to actually figure this out. And only recently, I think, only in the last six months or so, have we actually realized how to do this? And the answer is kind of obvious, and yet it was staring us in the face all the time, and I'll tell you what it is, and I encourage you to try it. We, we first of all, knew that we did not want to ship crap on time. We were just not going to ship a shit thing on time. That's not good. And we also know that building, so, building something is fluid. Building software certainly is fluid. It's unpredictable. You can take something to beta, give it to customers, think you've solved their problem, only to realize that you haven't, and it will take you longer. And so we realized this is like a multi-step thing, and then you might you know, add more people to the beta, and it might take longer. And so beta could take a week, or two weeks, or a month. It might even take three months. And this is, we accepted this and said, look, this is just a fluid, somewhat unpredictable thing. But the thing that we did, the thing that we figured out, was that we brought in program management. And I highly, highly encourage you, if you're at any scale whatsoever, to bring in program management. And I, I was a, a, a hesitant and resistant to this for a long, long time, I think because I didn't quite understand it. Um, but it's been incredibly powerful. And what program management does is simply looks at the outcomes you want to achieve and the work that needs to get done and just breaks it up into milestones and figures out who should be involved at which sta stage. And it can actually be quite lightweight. But just by breaking these things up into phases, you're actually able to get a lot of predictability. Or at least you can start to say, there's like you know, six phases here. We're at stage three, and we know that like stage four will be X or in this band of time, and we don't know about six yet. So OK, let's not plan for six. Pretty simple, but incredibly effective. It was a huge insight for us. So that's it. They are the five stories, these five pendulum swings, observing these problems, trying to fix them, correcting, overcorrecting, trying to find some balance in the middle. And these, these swings have been the hardest part of my job, certainly, and I think the hardest part of a lot of our jobs as we've grown the company. The thing about them, the thing that I've realized, is that they're painful, they're emotionally intense, uh, they're wearing. I've more lines in my face than I had a year ago and two years ago and three years ago because of them. But you must do, take them on. You, you need to observe these problems. You need to correct them. It's better to overcorrect and learn than to do nothing at all. And so I do encourage everybody, when you see these problems, to t tackle them 
face on and actually try and correct, even if it means doing something radical. But most of all, the biggest thing I learned is that you need to be humble. And humility is a kind of a funny thing. You know, I don't know if there was ever a time when I personally wasn't humble. I'm sure there was, and people would tell me 20 examples of times when I wasn't. But humility is just about knowing that you don't know something. And I think many, many times, like when program management was put in front of me, I was too dismissive. I said, mm, uh, that's not really us. I don't really believe in that philosophically. And that was like not showing any humility. That was showing some kind of like false hubris, not even subconsciously. I didn't even know I was doing it. And so be humble and realize that when people bring you things and potential solutions and new ways of working, no matter who they are, you should try and figure out if they could be useful for you. That's it. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.